0: Today's episode of the Wicked Library is brought to you by Cathedral Sounds, home of composers Kimberly Henninger and Sean Park, composers for award winning films, video games, and digital media. The next time you find yourself in need of a custom score or music for your own project, find them online at www.cathedralsounds.org. Also brought to you by Shadows at the Door. Shadows at the Door is an ever-growing collection of haunted stories inspired by the ghastly, the ghoulish, and the macabre. You can enjoy the pleasing terrors and similar content at ShadowsAtTheDoor.com.
1: Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network,
0: where stories live. Rewind edition. Tonight's episode includes a story read by the former host of the show, Cordula's Ballerina. That's the name of the story, not the name of the host. The host would be Nelson W. Piles. Also included are two brand new tales by Joseph Matulich, Return Post and Head Full of Worms. Please enjoy this terrifying evening of tales. Tonight's stories are truly terrifying. Make sure that all children are tied up quietly in their rooms away from the sound of this broadcast. All pets should be put away in their cupboards and windows closed tightly to keep out the monsters. Enjoy tonight's episode of the Wicked Library. <laughs> Library. Rewind edition. Your weekly dosa.
1: It is have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, worrels and rules. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time. At the Wicked Library. <laughs>
0: In spite of my having fantasized about it for years, I did not enjoy shooting my neighbor in the head. I always thought he was a drug dealer from the stream of low lives he had going in and out of his apartment. The way he hit my car in the parking lot once, wedged in a T against my front bumper, trying to drive over the grass, he had to be on crack. There were a dozen different reasons why I should have killed him with gusto but he was still a human being until this morning. Now, his head was full of worms and he was trying to force his way into my apartment. He let out the high-pitched scream of the infected and battered against my kitchen door with bloody fists. The piece-of-shit deadbolt busted out of the door jam, and my neighbor fell through onto my linoleum floor. That's when I blew the top of his head off with my shotgun. Blood, brains, and worms gushed across the white and yellow tiles. Though the body should have died instantly, it kept squealing and thrashing, spreading gore and thread-like parasites everywhere. I stepped back, not knowing whether the worms could chew through the bare skin of my ankles and eventually burrow into my brain. I didn't know what I could do if they did. Maybe cut off my own legs at the knees I leaned against the far counter well outside the splash zone and watched his body die nobody came at the sound of gunfire there were no cars that I could hear in the street my guess was that the worms had got them all my girlfriend Emily had been gone for hours her long haired cat brushed past my ankles without my really registering it it padded across the floor to sniff at the carnage, curious like all cats. That's why I killed it. A mass of slick gray worms bound together like a naked muscle lashed out of my neighbor's brain pan and wrapped around the cat's neck. It reared back, its eyes wide in terror and hissed. Without opening, the worms forced themselves down its throat. My girlfriend's pet fell over on its side and seized in the blood and brains and bone. It finally got up on its feet after about a minute, though it wasn't really a cat anymore. It was just another body being ridden by the worms. It opened its mouth with the same scream that my neighbor had just made and came for me. My shotgun was an antique. One shot and break the breech to reload. I didn't have time to do that. I swung the gun around and brought the butt down hard on its back. I kept swinging until it stopped thrashing around. Then I backed away. Out of the reach of the worms. That's when my girlfriend appeared with that dead, mad look of the worm written in her eyes. That was too much for me. Now... I was completely alone against the parasites. I pulled back with the shotgun and swung for the fences. The wooden stock caught her across the side of the face. The force knocked her to the floor. But within only seconds, she was starting to get up again. I switched my grip up to come in high and hard, right on the crown of her head, to put us both out of the misery of this moment. Other hands grabbed me from behind then. I cranked my neck around to see who, three or four men, still in the uniforms of cops and firefighters, surrounded me. They all had that crazed look in their eyes the worm-ridden get when they were on the attack. I clenched my jaws tight to keep them from forcing worms down my throat. As I dropped the shotgun and clapped my hands over my mouth, they beat me with sticks and fists. Somewhere in all this, I blacked out. I came to I don't know how much later. My arms were wrapped around me in a canvas straitjacket. The walls of my cell were padded in dirty white vinyl and the door was a heavy riveted piece of steel. I was grateful. There was no way those worms we're gonna get me in here. Cordula's ballerina.
1: Cordula's third-grade class watched a short film adaptation of Hans Christian Andersen's "The Steadfast Tin Soldier," and she never forgot it. A boy is given a set of tin soldiers for his birthday. One of which, the steadfast one, is missing a leg. The boy's parents seem to have a lot of money because his bedroom is decorated with an excess of wonderful toys. These toys include a beautiful paper ballerina positioned at the entrance of a grand castle. One leg is frozen in a graceful waist-high pirouette. From where the steadfast soldier stands, one leg is visible. Disability Adoration. She is like him, and she is stunning. Too stunning for him, he knows. The steadfast soldier is oh no! pushed out of a window by a jealous toy goblin and commences a harrowing journey through the sewer. He is ultimately swallowed by a fish so plump it rivals Pinocchio and Jonah's and, as fate would have it, purchased from the fishmonger for the boy's family. The cook slices through the thick fish flesh and voila! There lies the quite unsanitary figure of the tale's hero. Time to find a new fishmonger, perhaps. The Tin Man is only briefly reunited with his lady love when a little brother throws him for no apparent reason into a lit stove, maybe because of that pesky goblin, or maybe because Stercus Achidi. The ballerina is then blown by a random gust of wind to join him, the utter romantic bliss of it. Cordelet did not comprehend, as she was sent to her gray prison cell, that most fairy tales are horror stories. The film adaptation of that tale ends with a smooth, perfectly shaped heart, presumably the steadfast melted soldier, nestled with all that is left of his ballerina, her once brilliant spangle now blackened in the ashes of the fire. It was the visual of this pure Valentine's Day candy-like heart that so appealed to Cordula, this product of the dedication of the star-crossed lover. In her 25th year, Cordula's boyfriend Ken broke up with her because he said he needed space. She was smothering him, he told her. The truth was that he was screwing about a dozen other women and having to take Cordula out to dinner on Friday nights and then sleep over was cramping his style. Cordell immediately knew what she must do. It was fairly simple. The night after the morning he broke up with her, she went to a gas station and filled a can to the brim with gas, her shaking hands causing it to slop out a little before she was finally able to get the cap on. Her whole body shook as she walked from her car to his apartment building and up the stairs to the third floor. Pushing back her blue silk scarf, complemented by a glittering pin, she silently entered his bedroom. She hadn't anticipated there being someone in bed with him, but she was already in the middle of doing it, and she couldn't stop now, couldn't think too much about it. Ken would be her eternal heart that remained in the ashes of his shitty little one-bedroom apartment overlooking the highway. It was past Lights Out, but an unusual glint partially illuminated the figure in Cordula's cell, well enough for her to see it. Her perky white tutu was matted in blood, but her scarf was somehow clean. It was difficult to tell what color her hair had been. It was too burnt down to just about her scalp. Her point shoes were black, not the standard pale pink. The ribbons left a faint trail of smoke as she walked as were her tattered tights. A bright bauble an ostentatious yet pretty piece of costume jewelry attached to her scarf, gave off the glow. Her face. Cordula had never been able to make complete eye contact with her. Go away! Go away! Cordula pulled her knees up to her chin and rocked back and forth in her cot, the scratchy sheets rubbing against her thin elbows. The defense couldn't pull off the temporary insanity plea, mainly because of a list she scribbled on a Cosmopolitan magazine cover during a red light on her way to the gas station. Her mother disowned her. She knew this because she told her in the exact words, I disown you, in their last phone conversation five years ago. Shh, be quiet, tin girl, the ballerina whispered. She raised a finger with a partially missing ragged purplish nail to her lips. Her faint French accent was just as Cordula imagined it would be if she had spoken in the film. I have something to tell you. Cordula was eight when her daddy died in a freak accident. He tripped over a pair of scissors and broke his neck on the corner of a wall in the corridor of the office where he worked in the Human Resources Department. Who trips over scissors, right? He was dead before the ambulance arrived. Her mommy's heart died too, as she identified the body at the city morgue later that evening. He was late for dinner, and, as cliche would have it, she got mad because she thought he was dilly-dallying, a word she used to say when she used to say funny-sounding words to make Cordela giggle. One year to the day after Cordela's daddy died, The man who had misplaced his scissors shot himself in the head. Cordula first saw the bloody ballerina at a ballet lesson in her elementary school cafeteria about a week after the funeral. Cute Cordy was bourreying her little butt off, when suddenly there she was in the doorframe, the sun shining behind her so brightly that it made her wince. Arabesque! Arabesque! Mrs. Philomino was not pleased. Cordula had never been good at ballet. She was too short, but that wasn't really the problem. She had no sense of what most people feel naturally, the sense of freedom of self that's necessary to dance. No natural rhythm. If music was playing and people were clapping, she was the one whose clap was not in sync with everyone else's. When singing in music class, she repeatedly mouthed the word Watermelon, because she'd heard somewhere that it made it look as if you were singing. It must have worked because no one seemed to notice. Or cared, she assumed. The magical, monstrous ballerina said nothing on that day, said nothing until this night in the jail cell. She usually materialized at times when Cordula felt especially uncomfortable, sad, or angry. She popped in once at the office of a psychologist, the one who had diagnosed her with a personality disorder when she was 18. She was right behind his desk, sitting in his chair, her legs propped up on the desk, ankles crossed, arms crossed, ribbons simmering. Cordula hated that psychologist. She stared angrily at the dark orange carpet and the ceiling tiles and the fish in the fancy little bowl during their sessions, refusing to speak. She saw him only a few more times after his diagnosis, then called and left a message telling him that she decided she wouldn't be making any additional appointments with him because he was a waste of money. He called back and left a message saying that he hoped she would change her mind because he thought she could use a good two or four more years of counseling. This made her cry, because what was so wrong with her that she could use a good two or four more years of counseling? She spent the next full year inside her mother's house, watching soap operas and game shows, and eating as little as possible. Then she went to college and double-majored in psychology and business. "'What was it that the author wanted the kids to do in Peter Pan?' The ballerina asked Cordula, who was sitting on her cot in the position of a fascinated two-year-old, not waiting for a reply. She continued, relishing her sarcasm, "'Clap for the pretty fairies, kiddies! Sure you believe!' Then she clapped, but her pointer finger flew off and landed on the floor not too far from the hard toe of her left ballet shoe. She stared at it for a moment, then took the hard toe of her left ballet shoe and pushed hard into the crumbled finger, as if it were the butt of a cigarette that wouldn't stop sparking. She looked up after a while and smiled an unsettling smile. She started to say something, but Cordula interrupted her. "'So that's what you have to tell me? To clap? "'If I clap, will you go away for good?' "'This is what I'm here to say. "'Where is our castle, you stupid little girl? "'You are the same as you were when I first met you. "'I was standing at the castle door... I never got to go inside. And why? Because of the wind. And how did I effing end up? Charcoal. Nothing but charcoal. Because of some wind. Some motherfucking wind. I didn't even know the guy. Give the kid a break. She didn't actually kill anybody. It was one of the cell's bars speaking. It had grown two large cartoony eyes and a mouth that was wider than the bar itself. The jail cell bar spoke the truth. Neither Ken nor his doll de jour died. Cordula was convicted of twenty two counts of attempted murder, the number of people in Ken's apartment building at the time she lit it on fire. Not for a lack of trying,' retorted the silver toilet in the corner of the cell. No, 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 the ballerina scolded, Mary we will not have inanimate things babbling about while I'm in charge, like some fool seen from Beauty and the Beast or The Little Mermaid. The smoke emanating from her ballet shoe ribbons grew stronger, and the ends of the ribbons flamed like Independence Day sparklers. Leave here alone, she directed the toilet. We all know you're full of crap. The toilet was not amused but the jail cell bar laughed uproariously. "'How about me, my bitter ballerina?' asked a random gust of wind as it ruffled through Cordula's hair. She swatted at it but missed. "'Oh, my effing god, no!' The ballerina was so riled up that one of her eyes rolled out of her head. A blackened tooth bounced to the floor, making a loud clinkety-clunk-clunk than one might think a single tooth falling on a prison concrete might make, if one were to think about the sound of such things. She again put her finger to her pursed, cracked, transparent lips and whispered, shh, to Cordula. You're the one being loud, Cordula countered, feeling a bit like Alice talking to the Mad Hatter. And it was fish that talked in the Little Mermaid, BTW, Fish are animate, like the sea witch, Ursula. Pause. And wait a minute. What about you? You are supposed to be paper. That's all you have to offer at this point in time? That fish are alive? And B-T-W, in the real story, she's not named Ursula. And it's not about bloody feet, no happy endings. And, and... "'You missed my point as usual! That's what you get for watching only the film adaptations! "'Did you know that ballerinas put lambswool in the toes of their shoes "'because dancing makes their toes bleed?' Cordelia rolled her eyes. "'Poor lambs. Know what? "'I think that in the distant future, if we don't destroy ourselves first, "'humans and technology will be completely combined "'and immortality won't just be for vampires.' "'I'll be dead by then, though.' "'Interesting and quite random stuff, monsieur. "'But all you have to listen to is an obnoxious toilet.' "'The toilet farted loudly. "'The ballerina rolled the eye still in her head "'and absently kicked with her right foot in fifth position "'like a pinball flipper, the one that had fallen on the floor. "'Tomorrow morning is a parole hearing.' How do you plan to behave? Or do you plan to hide out here like you're in the belly of a ship? Because I won't be there. You're working me gone now. Get out of here or don't. Watch out for toy goblins, tin girl. And then she was. Gone. The talking grotesques were silent. All that was left was the ballerina's unsoiled scarf. Cordula picked it up off of the floor and ran her fingers through it, thinking more than usual. Silky. A visual came to her of her body hanging from it, and her face. Her face like that of the ballerina.
0: POST Jason felt a clenching in his gut at the sight of the black enameled owl on his mailbox. He had an unfailing intuition for bad news. He knew the moment every check bounced, every bill posted past due, every packet of medical tests arrived with a worsening diagnosis. Always it felt like a fist squeezing around his esophagus pinching him shut and roiling the digestive juices below. He opened the front of the box anyway. Disaster postponed was no less painful, but always less manageable. As he expected, the mailbox was full. The crisp white envelopes spit out by the robots and accounts receivable departments took up the large part. Laboratory fees, consultations, thick itemized demands from the last days at the hospital, a missed installment on the funeral home's payment plan. He would juggle those when he was paid again next Thursday. Intermixed with those were the personal notes. Most were petite, squarish envelopes addressed in feminine hands. One larger card, its return address showed it to be from the large family of a co-worker, was bowed back upon itself to fit in the tight confines of the mailbox. The family's youngest daughter had decorated the envelope with crude but enthusiastic flowers and bumblebees. The personal things would go onto the stack on the mantel. Lara had always handled those things before. He had no idea what he would do with them now. Behind all of this, there was a package. Someone had gone to great care to wrap it tightly in glossy black paper. Jason's address and a return P.O. box number were marked on it in silver marker in lettering fit for a blueprint. It was the size of a checkbox and surprisingly light. Nothing rattled when he shook it. Once inside his apartment, Jason unwrapped the package carefully as if performing an autopsy. Someone had folded the edges of the paper to give everything a finished look like a well-made cabinet. Matte clear tape covered all the joints to give nothing to catch on the automated machinery of the postal service. When Jason cut it away, a plain white cardboard box was revealed. He saw no markings, no clue of what laid inside. The nesting lid pulled up once Jason cut the tape around its edges. Clean, white tissue paper filled the box. Wrapped up inside the paper... was hair. The hair was honey blonde shot through with gray... a single skein two or three inches across. Pretty much the same color as Lara's. The bundle of hair... Was about 18 inches long and attached on one end to what looked to be a patch of scalp. The pale, supple skin had uneven edges like a jigsaw puzzle. Jason held this in his hands for several moments, passively wondering if this was a joke or a funeral tradition he had not been warned about or simply a mistake. In the end, he wrapped it back up in its paper shroud and put it and the box on Lara's desk in the office. The emotional energy for outrage or curiosity had been siphoned out of him by the system he and his wife had fallen into upon her illness. A world-spanning machine that, for the life or death of the patient, was really only meant to create mountains of crisp white envelopes. He went back downstairs to start drinking. Another box came the next day. Another skein of honey blonde hair came shrouded and wrapped in tissue and black glossy paper. He didn't know what to make of it. Didn't know whether to scream or cry or call the police. He ran it between his fingers and reminisced like Lara's hair and the times he would have brushed it out for her. Idly holding the two artifacts up to each other, Jason found two edges matched up to make a larger piece. He left them that way on her desk. Eleven more identical boxes came in the mail. On the fourth or fifth day, he bought a styrofoam wig head and started pinning the interlocking pieces to it. He had nearly a complete head of hair when the teeth started coming. There was no question. These were Lara's teeth. He recognized them from the three decades of her smile. They arrived by twos and threes in their glossy black postal packages, as dainty and white as always. There was even the bridge at the end where she had lost a tooth to abscess. Jason first thought to press them into the foam that had held his wife's hair. But the molars proved to be problematic. Ultimately, he bought a black velvet jewelry display tray at the arts and crafts store and laid them out in two arcs as they would have been in life. An hourglass form of enamel and polymers. The head and the tray took up most of her desk now. The crisp white envelopes piled higher on the coffee table, unopened. Jason felt close to nothing as he approached the mailbox each day. No premonitions, just a mild curiosity as to what little surprise might be waiting for him. Exactly one month after the first carefully wrapped package, the eye Arrived in his mailbox. It came sealed in a plastic bag beneath the tissue paper, still moist and looking alive. The textured nerves and tendons dangled from the orb like the fins of a tropical fish. Jason swore it turned to focus on him within its plastic shroud. This was the first package that included a note. The handwriting was lettering fit for a blueprint. It read, You are a good man, and soon you will be reunited with your wife. His eyes tracked down to the bottom of the paper, where the footnote waited for him. Some
1: assembly required.
0: Societies rise And Societies fall When the time comes One society Steps forward to build A better future The Wicked Library Kettle Whistle Radio Night Story Podcast Prog Watch Red Horse Radio The Lift History Goes From Listen, the M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time.